0: Osiris. the margin the podcast is a show that brings you in-depth interviews with notable authors artists musicians activists filmmakers and introspective eccentrics of all kinds diving deeply into topics that demand deeper examination and illustrating the notion that there are captivating stories to be found everywhere across the margin the podcast is proudly in the loop Brinkman.
1: You are tuned into episode 64 of the Beyond the Pond podcast. This is the podcast in which Brian and myself utilize the music of fish as a means of getting the listener to listen to other bands. These are usually not jam bands because we love fish. We are fish fans, but at this point, you probably know that listening just to fish makes you myopic. We want to do something about that.
0: We absolutely do. And Here at Beyond the Pond, we have two missions. We want to fight fish myopia, and we want to fight territorial listening. We are open to learning with all of you. We are here on a journey. We want to learn about new music. We want to discuss new music. We may be wrong about our new music sometimes, but we're here to share what's blown our minds with you guys. We're stoked about the conversation, and we've got a great episode tonight that's going to do even more of that as we have been here over the last two years. Uh, tonight we are talking about a very special version of the song Reba. Our very first Reba episode that came to us in Augusta, Maine on October 19th, 2010. Mm. 2010.
1: 2010. Some of the themes that we're going to discuss in this episode include... The Weird After the Return, the influence of Dizzy Gillespie, and Fish's Fall 2010 tour nearly a decade on. Interesting tours are going to come to find out. And on that note, let's get to the Fish. <laughs>
0: Snacks a little with a pool. Need deep in the hotel, tip, we would from a lift. Dip, sit. People don't sit with a lipstick perfume, butter to a farmer in a truck. Take a cheetah, of cheer, but cheat on the ground when the kids take a boulder in the water. Tie a cable to a tree. But an issue with the nag with a lipstick perfume, people push a fresh farm, lift up a thunder in a circle. Down the pipes. Bag it, tag it. All right, guys. So why are we talking about Reba here after 63 episodes? Well, more than really any other jam from the fall 2010 tour, this encore version of Reba seemed to summarize the band's larger goals throughout that two-week tour. It's a solid version of the composed section, but when it moves into the jam, Trey guides the band into a darker, ominous place that turns into a take on Manteca, before moving back into the jam's peak conclusion in a really fascinating way.
1: I mean, a 16 minute Reba Encore? Why not this jam? I mean, you know, like a Reba Encore being the single longest jam of a show is a very 2010 looking thing. I mean, like many shows in 2010, the only songs to breach 10 minutes in this show are Harry Hood, Light, and Divided Sky, which, you know, doesn't really count.
0: Right. Um, yeah, this is a uh, clear highlight from a show that, as we're going to get into here in a second, was a really good really good performance and a really unique tour and really kind of turned the curve as the tour went into its best week. Um, before we do that, some comparable versions of Reba that we have that divert from the standard jam. Um, and I should say, before we say that, we were saying this right before we went to recording, Reba is kind of like one of five songs that you could play at every single fish show I go to and I would be completely happy. And when it goes into its standard Bliss Jam, it is just some of the best fish I've ever heard. Some of my favorite stuff live. But it's really fascinating. There are certain versions of the jam that have diverted from where Reba typically goes and it's gotten to some interesting places. So a couple of these... First up, some August 93 versions, August 12th, 1993, and August 16th, 1993, which I believe is from Louisville, as well as uh, July 6th, 1994, which if you have not heard this jam in line with Yankee Hotel Foxtrot, stop everything, go and listen to it. This version from Montreal is absolute perfection.
1: We've also got October 18th, 1994, December 8th, 1994. We've got um, May 16th, 1995, of course, being the show in Lowell, Massachusetts, where they debuted a bunch of the stuff that ended up on Billy Breeds. we got July 1st, 1997.
0: Then we move into 1998. We've got July 16th, 1998 from The Gorge, a version that segues into Fast Enough For You and is just gorgeous uh, mid-set one sunset jam at The Gorge. Uh, October 29th, 1998 from LA. Uh, July 13th, 1999, another unique Set 1 version that segues into Carini.
1: Great Woods, Uh, I was there.
0: Great Woods, I love this version. Um, July 6th, 2000, uh, as well as August 2nd, 2003 from IT. Just
1: want to say the version from December 31st, 1995... New Year's 95 doesn't divert from the standard jam exactly, but in my opinion, still is the best version of Reba. A little bit, they kind of butcher the composed section a bit, but the jam is just, you can dial that up anytime and be transported back to a magical evening.
0: Completely agree. That's a absolutely beautiful version and some of my favorite tray, especially in that, um, in the jam section of it. Um, of note, as we are talking about a very unique encore version of Reba, Reba has only appeared as an encore four times in fish history March 31st, 1991, September 21st, 1999, this version from October 19th, 2010, and from Reading, Pennsylvania, October 29th, 2013, a show that we discussed in episode 8 when we talked about the Reading Downer Disease. Good show that. Good show that. In terms of this show, what do you have to say about October 19th, 2010, Dave?
1: Probably one of the best shows of the fall 2010 tour. Uh, The first set, it's tight, solid and fun. Doesn't uh, quite approach the bust-ass that we heard in the previous night, nor the, uh, I guess you could say, the wild setless trickery and tease action of the next night. You got some highlights like the third ever version of, uh, the stone song torn and frayed one of seven all time bathtub gin. gets a bit outside the norm. You can thank Mike Gordon for that. You know, kind of like a type 1.5 version, solid 46 days. Good standard 2010 first set. Really?
0: Yeah. It's about as solid a solid standard first set as you could hope for from fish in 2010. Um, set two though is pretty strong throughout. Uh, It opens with Fuck Your Face into mics, back into Fuck Your Face, which hints at what we're going to get from the band the following night in Utica, as well as what we're going to get from the band about 10 days later, 11 days later in Atlantic City with their second set there. Um, I still consider the light from this show to be the best jam of 2010. Um, As much as I love the light from the Greek, as well as the tweezer from New York City on the... December 30th. Trey's patience and the melody that he finds here, it's about as focused as we're going to hear Trey play until about 2012. And it's really everything that I wanted out of Fish in 2010. And I remember specifically the first time I listened to this jam being absolutely shocked that Trey was able to find a melody at that point in the guitar and play it for you know, a good minute and a half. This was something that was quite unique in any fish jamming. I mean, a lot of what Trey was doing up until this point was very rhythmic chopping where he'd come up with an idea and then quickly abandon it. It was really the first time I'd heard in 3.0 Trey really commit to an idea, build it and that was what the whole jam was based off. Of. I still love this channel.
1: I'd say this is unquestionably a good version though it's 2010 good. Yes. kind of dwarfed by several versions of light from 2012 onward of course being a legendary Dick's light um, December thirtieth, of 2018 Great Woods 2016 the light uh, from Dick's from the first show after Curveball got cancelled that said probably a, a top 10 2010 jam I'm still partial to um, the Zeppelin Chalk Dust Tweezer Madness on October 30th the Plinko Tweezer from December 30th 2010 and uh the big chalk dust in Billie Jean 2001 from uh June 25th 2010 but this is 2010 we're talking about so Slim's Pickens and the Mesh just walked in a run so fuck everything that's okay
0: <laughs> <laughs> um <laughs> um yeah I mean I think just you know as a quick note um as, and we'll talk about this as we're, as we're continuing through this section. Um, a lot of what you hear that we really like in uh, 2010 is foundational building stuff. And this light is very much in line with foundational building as they move forward in their overall uh, return from hiatus. Um, but following the light, you get a really well-placed, fast enough for you uh, after, I think 20 years later. Hood is really gorgeous, really straightforward. And then the Reba Encore. This was a really, really excellent, top-notch show at the time, and this uh, really paved the way for where the band was going in uh, what you know I think many would consider the best tour to that point in time in 3.0. Um, and speaking of the tour in full, so now three full tours into their comeback, Fall 2010 is when Fish really began to feel like Fish again. Sure, there were some great highlights in August 09 and August 10. And sure, parts of fall 2009, uh, Philly Night One and MSG in particular, really felt like Fish was finding an interesting new direction as a modern, more classic esque rock band. Nothing clicked on the level that fall 2010 did with both fans and band alike. It would not be until summer 2012 that the band would consistently connect on this level again. And by then, the Jams became more of a focal point throughout their shows.
1: I kind of agree with that statement. I mean, fall 2010, I think, was certainly a tour where fish got more cute with their jams and set list structure, kind of like the Gaiudica show for the next night, um, the Rarities and Shake the Sillies Out set list for the Manchester, New Hampshire show, the Zeppelin Tees Madness on October 30th, and like we said, the Face fucking Mike's Groove and the rather uh, Calypso heavy light from this show. But I don't think there's still much approaching the jams that they made their name on, and too many, still too many songs. The only show I caught on this tour was uh, October 23rd, 2010, from the Mullen Center in Amherst. And, you know, while I certainly had fun, to say it bore any sort of resemblance to the last time they put the Mullen Center would be an untruth. And what was with the venue size in this tour? Like, Fish playing the Augusta Civic Center? Utica, New York? The gym at the University of Massachusetts? Like, at the time, I was kind of wondering if this was a conscious effort to Fish to get back to their kind of uh, northeast upstate New York small industrial town roots or a simple acknowledgement that they just weren't capable of selling as many tickets as they used to. Like, I just recall... Getting uh, the email for the fall tour itinerary at my desk at the office and letting out an audible. Huh.
0: (laughs) I think it was definitely the former. Um, I mean, I saw them a bunch on summer 2010, and they were selling out. Really, you know, decent-sized amphitheaters, Alpine Valley, uh, the Hartford Meadows, Spac. I mean, these were all packed places. It wasn't like there were um, any space. So I don't know if it was necessarily. An inability to sell tickets. Um, I think it was, you know, they'd done three full tours at this point in time and they really wanted to see what it was like to play kind of more intimate shows. I think it benefited them overall.
1: Confession, I've never heard of know The Providence Show in this tour. Is any good?
0: I like The Providence Show. It's definitely a notch below the best shows of the tour. Um, the first set is definitely, you don't have to hear the first set ever and, you know, in your entire life. Um, oh, the second set's got a cool rock and roll, a good Carini, a really cool light. Um, it kind of has really weird, but weird flow that kind of works. Um, that show, I have really fond memories of, I got engaged that day and my wife and I to celebrate got takeout and a bunch of beer and couch short because that's what, hippies will do when they're getting married (laughs) and we had a great time and you know it was just uh it's it's great memories but um
1: I would say definitely... I hope you didn't get engaged. You didn't get engaged to get separate, did you?
0: No, I was not actually at this show. I was in Santa Barbara, California when I got right, engaged. Right, but I'm
1: saying you didn't like start watching the webcast and get engaged during separate. No, them. no. <laughs> All right, because that would have been the wookiest shit ever.
0: <laughs> that's yeah. on couch tour, right. absolutely not. No. So, I mean, in short, I think you should you should hear the second set. It's a good second set. I don't know if it will hold up compared to anything that's been played past 2012, but I definitely like it. I think it's worth hearing.
1: Okay. I think we're seeing how, um, what the first big show on the tour was October 16, 2010, being the uh, – right? Yes. That was the second night in Charleston. That was,
0: yeah. That show, um, as recently as I think 2015, there were still meaningful swaths of the fan base considering this to be one of the best shows of 3.0. Um, I kind of lost that argument in like 2012, but I definitely was hearing it floated around that this was one of the best shows that the band had played. Um, I think one of the big things about this show is the set list was phenomenal by 2010 standards, and the second set flows really well. Um, you get the first Curtain With of 2010 at a time when its performances were on par with Fluffhead for extreme significance. Um, you get the fifth Mango, Sand, Sally, and cross and Painless of 3.0. So, three tours in, these songs are just like scattered once or twice um, across the tour. And then the third, Uncle Pan Pebbles, and uh Quindy Eskimo of 3.0. So you really get um, uh, a band kind of re-embracing some of these. I don't know if I don't know these are like their bigger songs, but like songs that they know that their fan base loves a lot. They're re-embracing this show, plus you get a really solid flowing second set.
1: And then we gotta talk about October 20th, 2010, Gayutica. This was Regarded by several Although I don't think Me and Brian I don't think you either uh, No Best show at 3.0 To this point You know It kind of at least joined um, Canon 2009 First Night of Gorge 2009 Hartford 09 Philly 109 This doesn't come close To Hartford 09 What the hell
0: No <laughs> <laughs> It, it joined It was on <laughs> It was on It was on par With the big shows Of 3.0 uh, Philly 1, Meriwether Post, Night 2, 2010, Greek 3, 2010, Alpine 1, 2010, as like the statement shows. And it was for a long time considered the statement show of the fall 2010 tour. Um, I like other shows from this tour more. I think I like October 26th and October 30th more than October 20th. Um, but at the time... This was a huge, huge, huge deal.
1: At the time, which kind of speaks more about the time.
0: Yeah, I mean, you've got a wild set list. You've got innovative experimentation, the Soam sandwich, like the Split Open and Melt and the Have Mercy and the Piper and the Split Open and Melt, capped off by Slave of the Traffic Light. They weren't doing anything like that right. in 2010. Like 2009, early 2010, you had nothing like this where they were trying to break down set list structures and break down song structures, even... Early on in the show, the way that Wolfman's brother segues into cities, you didn't hear that in set one of a, of a show at all in 2009,
1: 2010. Um, Plus, my dad was born in Utica, so there's that.
0: There's that, there's that. Um, I would say if anyone listening is a Fish fan, of what Fish has recently done here in the latter parts of this decade, this is a must-hear show to just understand the development of 3.0.
1: Yes. Plus, it was released. I mean... It was. There's a lot of 2010 shows that are on Spotify. It's kind of... It's odd to me how widespread 2010 seems to have been, like, represented in, like, streaming services and live fish relative to other tours. Because, like, is available. And the next one we're going to talk about being uh, October 26, 2010 from Manchester, New Hampshire. That's available. And the way that one can best be summed up is...
0: Rarities. It's rarities. It's a killer set list. There's a really great jam in light that kind of builds off of the way that they played light on October 19th, and uh, yeah, it's really well played. Um, this show was a ton of fun to follow online and a ton of fun to listen back to, and I think this more so than Utica really really holds yeah, up. Yeah,
1: it's t- like you said, it's well played. I mean, the the mics grew, the mics. Simple Makasupa and Tonight Nervous in tribute to Gregory Isaacs, who I think died the day before. Yes. Back into Makasupa, back into a really well played wedge, which it's not that special, but the tempo is really upbeat. Organ sounds really cursed. They nail the vocals. Like it's probably my favorite, very standard version of the song. And then later in the set, you get like an 11 minute ghost that
0: segues nicely into Mango Song.
1: Yeah. It's, uh, 1026 is a very good show, and that might be my non-Atlantic City pick for uh,
0: the fall. Absolutely, and jumping to Atlantic City, the Night Before the Night show, October 30th, 2010, this is a very fun show. The first set absolutely holds up on re-listen, Chalk Dusk, whole lot of love, Chalk Dusk is a phenomenal segment of music, um Mm. the zeppelin set too was really amazing in the moment uh it was really cool surprise that they were doing this they were kind of fucking with the fan base again the year before when they played on october 30th at festival eight it was a pretty standard show that didn't really harness the um overall vibe of uh what it should be like to be playing the night before halloween this show absolutely does um It definitely fit with the tour's vibe as well and kind of re-injected humor into Fish 3.0, which projected them forward as a band. I don't know how much the Zeppelin stuff holds up on tape. I don't think it really does that much at all. But um, I know that the first set especially is well worth your time. It's an incredibly energetic set and one of the best rock sets that they had played to that point.
1: I actually like 1030 better than
0: 1031. Oh, 100%. I don't think...
1: um, 1031 one's not a very spectacular holiday no. show. I think we actually talked about this with Steve Hayden the last time. The uh, the waiting for Columbus is one of the weaker, if not the weakest, costume. Not that the material is bad. Yes, it's just that that's entirely a vibe record, and Fish kind of had no business trying to capture that vibe. So
0: yes, I think. Um, I mean, what are your thoughts? Kind of overall in fall twenty ten, if we were to look back on it nine years later, um what are your thoughts in terms of what the band was trying to do based on what you've heard and kind of how this helped to project them forward?
1: Twenty ten they were trying. Like um in fall twenty ten, the effort was there. I think playing the smaller venues brought out some of the creative juices in terms of um like the rebo we're talking about, in terms of the light from the same night there were some te- yeah teases I think the word I keep coming back to for these t- fall shows and these tiny venues is cute in the sense mm-hmm. that they're, they're fun to listen to there's little curly cues lots of little asterisks here and there it was certainly a stepping stone I guess some of the more um, in some ways I almost like fall 2010 better than the hall of 2011 which I yeah. think was a bit was a bit of an aberration year And while I don't want to keep repeating myself, but I think fall 2010 definitely smacks of effort. And going back, there's actually definitely some pockets of enjoyable stuff, but still doesn't come close to what happened in 2012 and 2013.
0: Yeah, I think at the end of the day, without this tour, the band wouldn't have had the courage to really push themselves further, as we would see from a jamming standpoint in 2011 with the storage jamming or in 2012, with this really fantastic mix of excellent set lists, exciting jams, all of which led to this kind of full return in 2013. Um, I think that you can kind of, at this point, uh, split 3.0 into two halves of 09 to the end of 2012 and then 2013 to what we have today and um, 2010, I agree with you. Uh, it's There's a cuteness to it and it almost... Um, uh, it's it's definitely worth re-listening to if not um, – if it doesn't hold up as much as it it seemed like it would in the moment. But I think it definitely projected the van forward in a really important way.
1: Like I actually counter the amount of songs they played at that New Hampshire show. They played 27 songs. That's too many songs to play at a fifth show.
0: Right, right. <laughs>
1: somebody should do um, you got a lot of that there's that account I forget who it is it escapes me Um, it's uh, the woman who's been doing like really really awesome pictographs of like fish shows and stats I think uh, actually the person we're talking about on Twitter is Maya Gans is at Maya if you're uh, listening to this episode of Beyond the Palm Maya we think your stuff is absolutely awesome And if you ever wanted to do uh, a pictograph involving the amount of sheer amount of songs played in 2011, 2012 and 2010. We think that would be pretty cool. And with that, let's listen to uh, a segment of the Reba encore that Fish played on October 19, 2010 in Augusta, Maine.
0: All right, guys hope that you enjoyed that version of REBA from October 19th 2010 in Augusta Maine. So our first segment music that we're going to talk about is called The Weird After The Return. What does this mean? Well, as we were talking about there in terms of the fall 2010 tour, Fish came back in March 2009. It was very much of a joyous, celebratory welcome back. And then people needed them to get serious again and uh, start getting a little bit weird. And this tour, uh, fall 2010, was when that happened. And so we're going to talk about a couple of our favorite artists who went through similar uh, experiences of a welcome home, of a really nice return in terms of uh, the type of music that they were putting out to their fan base. Um, And then started to get super weird again. To do so, I'm going to talk about one of our favorite artists here, an artist that we are in no ways ashamed to feature repeatedly. And because of his work over the last five decades, it's really easy for us to find different ways to slot him in. And that is Mr. Neil Young. More specifically, we're going to talk about Neil Young and Crazy Horse, their album from uh, 1994, Sleeps with Angels, and the song Change Your Mind. So how does this fit in with the weird after the return? Well, following the release of Harvest Moon in 1992, which essentially updated Young's early 70s warm acoustic songwriting on albums like After the Gold Rush and Harvest, Neil opted to get weird again, but not before playing a much-celebrated MTV Unplugged show. The album Sleeps with Angels was recorded with Crazy Horse and was a deliberate attempt to rediscover the ditch following Harvest Moon, much like they did on Tonight's a Night following Harvest. The title track and dedication of the record was created for Kurt Cobain, who died shortly before the record was released. And Sleeps With Angels is essentially a 1990s sober version of Tonight's Night. The weirdness is here. It's back again in full force. It's just a bit of a healthier kind of weird. Think once again like Fish's fall 2010 tour. Of note on this record, uh, Western Hero and Train of Love contain the same music, just different lyrics. And Change Your Mind, the song that we're going to play here, is the big crazy horse jam that appears midway throughout the record. It's 14 minutes and completely worth your time. Young would follow this record up with the record mirror ball, which he recorded with Pearl jam and then broken arrow followed by year of the horse, which was his live record. Both of which are with crazy horse and both are essential 1990s young releases.
1: Yeah, plus Year of the Horse actually also had that really awesome documentary which was shot by Jim Jarmusch. So Year of the Horse Live is kind of um, the soundtrack for that documentary. Yes. Which I think parts of it are on YouTube. I'm not positive. I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if the whole thing was up there. I don't really know how somebody would see it in this day and age otherwise. But also... Uh, this record we were uh, Brian was just talking about sleeps with angels. That was the last Neil Young record to be produced by his longtime producer David Briggs, who would actually yes. die of cancer, I think, in 1995. Unfortunately, I think I used to know the last album he produced. It might have been Nick Cave's Let Love In. You that was one of the last ones. But yeah, he uh, he went far too soon. Yeah, his production on this album and all the new albums is quite amazing. I remember when this record came out, I think Rolling Stone gave it like four and a half stars and it was, it was quite highly acclaimed in its time and really very much holds up.
0: Absolutely. And of note, I mean, this along with yeah. Harvest Moon kind of, you know, it leads to this great renaissance for Young's career in the late 1990s and... I think part of the reason why we're able to use Neil Young so often is if you listen to Year of the Horse, it begins with a a fan screaming, they all sound the same, and Young saying back to him, it's all one song, man. It's all one
1: song. (laughs) That happened at Hartford, Connecticut. That show was played in a thunderstorm. I did not go because I was only like 16 years old at the time, but my friend's mom went and said it was incredible. (laughs) had a lot of respect my friend's mom
0: after that wonderful let's go ahead and let's listen to a little bit of change your mind off of sleeps with angels from neil young and crazy horse the morning comes there's an odor in the room scent of Change your, mind. Change,
1: your mind. Change your mind. Change your mind. Change your mind. Okay, Brian, thank you for uh, playing that Neil Young song. The band I'm going to talk about here is The Strokes. An album is called Come Down Machine. You may have not known The Strokes had an album called Come Down Machine. A lot of people didn't. <laughs> and now uh, the song we're going to play is called Happy Ending. So. In 2006, The Strokes put out their third album, First Impressions of Earth, which I think is really bad. It's almost an hour long. I think it has like 14 or 15 songs. Maybe it's got three or four good songs, but a lot of it's really strange and garbagey and kind of confused. And um, after this record, they basically went on a hiatus They all engage in some side projects like uh, Julian Casablanca's first official solo record called Freezes for the Young came out in 2009. I think it's pretty excellent. They weren't entirely sure. They felt like being a band again, kind of dismissed with the press. And yet regardless, in 2011, they put out an album called Angles. And despite sounding somewhat pieced together, and I know I think it was touched by multiple producers, I think it was pretty good. Nice little comeback record. The first song, Machu Picchu, and the last song, Life is Simple in the Moonlight, I think are still two of the best stroke songs ever. And even though this album, I think none of the band members were in the room at the same time when it was recorded, Julian Casablanca has actually provided his vocals via like email submissions.
0: That really <laughs> happened.
1: Um, their rock solid instincts for doing like pop and rock songs went out, and I think that album kind of holds up. But I'm really talking about here the follow-up, which only took them two years after um, Angles. And while I sometimes feel like I'm the only person in the universe who still listens to it, the Fifth Strokes album, Come Down Machine, is both the strangest album of the Strokes' career, and I think probably their best since their second one. It's a weird little record, and it kind of exposes the Strokes for the total dorks that they actually are. This kind of makes them out to be like, you know, kids from the 80s who listen to like DeBarge and Duran Duran in the back of like their parents' station wagons. And there's one song, um, I think the first single, One Way Trigger, which kind of sounds like it was played on like a Casio tone keyboard, like preset one hand, almost like an 8-bit Nintendo sound. Almost like it was like one of Wesley Willis's backing tracks. And it's still a pretty cool song. I mean, the record sounds like it was fun to make. Zero expectations. I think they actually did record this one or they're all in the room at the same time. And it kind of justifies all the times they were talking to the press and they just wanted to be like God of I Voices, just kind of turning on slightly askew, lo-fi pop nuggets, didn't have to worry about being East Village heartthrobs anymore. And they haven't put out a record since. They kind of put out uh, one EP two years ago. That was fine. But... I mean, they've kind of settled to be in the American version of Oasis in that they can play festivals and they feel like it and they just trot out songs from the first two albums and people will pay for it. Nobody really cares about anything beyond the first two records. And, you know, and they're playing some American festivals this summer. If they ever want to put out a record out, great. I've always got a soft spot for the Strokes. And uh, this album, Come Down Machine, pretty surprising. I would check it out and the song Happy Ending, which we're gonna play is probably my favorite track on the record. So let's listen to that.
0: recommendations and um i think this is the closest aligned dave and i have ever been in our new album recommendations from a sonic style which you guys will all know here in the next couple of minutes but i think this is the first time in the history of beyond the bond that we are like right aligned with the type of records that we are uh pushing to you guys here uh both of our bands are um seasoned veterans and uh mm. both of them uh tend to make Digitally enhanced music, if you will. Um, so the artist that I am going to uh, talk about here is Christian Fenezes, who goes as Fenezes, uh And the record Agora, which is Fenezes' first record in five years. And is already a top five to ten album of the year for me. Uh, it's 47 minutes, covered just four tracks. Each all the more consuming than the last it is a patient record, it feels everywhere when you're hearing it, and its layers encourage repeated listens and new discoveries every time you press play. In short, this is a true headphones listen. Now, Christian Fenton's two closest peers are Aphex Twin and Tim Hecker. And like their 2010s releases, this is as much an update on his past brilliance as it is a statement uh, on his and the genre that he plays in longevity. Keen listeners to be on the pond will know that we discussed Fennesz's work in episode seven, Jones Beach Bowie, where we used the album *Endless Summer*, one of my top ten from that decade, in breaking down that jam. Um, this record here, *Agora*. The songs grow with patience, they reveal themselves through synthesizers and processed guitars before fading away. They are desert scapes in the fullest sense, and the record itself feels like a drive through the middle of the desert in the middle of the night. It's a fascinating record. I recommend all of our listeners uh, checking out here, and um, I'm going to definitely enjoy it as the year continues, uh, as I've got some road trips up ahead, and I think that this will suit them very nicely in the evening and wee hours. Dave, what do you got for us?
1: The album I'm going to talk about, it's electronic. I think it's probably far more aggro than the Fennec Says record. Mm-hmm. It's the new record from the Chemical Brothers. No Geography. Holy shit, man. Did you forget about the Chemical Brothers? If <laughs> you hearing the bass line, the first song on this album, you will fucking remember the Chemical Brothers they will always be bigger on the European festival circuit than they are here in the States. But after the kind of late nineties brush with fame, when they got lumped in with the big beats like the prodigy and fat boy slam and crystal method, and I guess to a lesser extent uh, kind of primal scream, they just never stopped making records. I mean, some of these like, uh, they kind of slumped a bit in the mid two thousands, 2005s pushed the button, especially, 2007's We Are The Night were kind of lame. But really, Chemical Brothers never stopped doing the big beat psychedelic dance thing where you got clattering cowbells, rubbery bass lines, furious laser noises. It's all poured into your ears. They just don't do beats. I mean, really, they construct these like Technicolor psychedelic soundscapes for the lesson to get lost in that just happen to be danceable. Like Tom Rollins and Ed Simon, these aren't like fly-by-night like, uh, fly EDM jockeys. They construct albums like classic rock bands, construct albums. And actually, uh, their last two records being, um, I want to say, 2010's Further and 2015's Born, the Echoes were very good. This one, No Geography, this is the payoff. I know they're touring the States this summer. I've gotten really strange looks on the subway from furiously tapping my feet to the first few songs in this album. (laughs) You should get yourself some Kelka Brothers. And if you haven't ever heard the last song on their album uh, called Dig Your Own Hole, which I think came out in 1997, The Private Psychedelic Reel, do yourself a favor, listen to The Private Psychedelic Reel, and then you can thank me for changing the trajectory of your life afterwards. And then when you're done with that, Go check out No Geography. Very impressive album.
0: All right. So for our final segment of music here from this episode, we are going to talk about the influence of Dizzy Gillespie. Why are we talking about Dizzy Gillespie? Well, there's a very clear Manteca jam deep inside of that Reba, which aside from being a fantastic, uh, a fantastic jam and a fa- fantastic segment in the jam is just such a cool little melody to come out of a Reba jam of all places. And uh, it's important to talk about the artists that paved the way for what we eventually got to with Fish. Dizzy Gillespie is one of the most important jazz uh, musicians of the of the genre, and uh, we felt we owed it a, a hat tip to him. So I'm going to talk about um, the song Salt Peanuts off of the record Groovin' High. And so this is one of the defining songs off of a phenomenal compilation from Dizzy Gillespie featuring some of his best songs that transformed jazz and bebop. This was recorded between 1945 and 1947 and was released in 1955, showcasing a transformative time in the artist's career and the overall genre. The song Salt Peanuts was written with Kenny Clark and credited to Charlie Parker. And the song is called a contrafact uh, of the song I Got Rhythm. What a contrafact is, is a similar rhythmic structure with a different melody. Uh, This is a very simple piece. It's a four-measure riff phrase played twice in each A section and slightly more complex bridge uh, which incorporates the flat nine seven eight figure twice now dizzy gillespie was a leading voice in the progression of jazz towards bebop he took the style of roy eldridge and added layers of harmonic and rhythmic complexities previously unheard of in jazz much of which was controversial at the time but ultimately pushed the genre forward in ways that were unexpected In addition, Gillespie taught artists like Miles Davis, Chuck Mangione, Fats Navarro during the 1940s. And the style of music that he helped pioneer, bebop, was not viewed with much positivity or popularity when it first emerged, especially as swing music dominated popular music at the time. However, in hindsight, it became much more historically important as it helped to incorporate more musical ideas and new thoughts into the world of jazz. Gillespie has been known for creating the Sound of Surprise, which you can hear extensively in this version of Salt Peanuts, which we're going to hear right now. Salt peanuts, 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 peanuts.
1: Dizzy Gillespie song that I'm gonna play for you here. It's called Cool Breeze, off the album Dizzy Gillespie at Newport, which was recorded from the 1957 version of the New York the Newport Jazz Festival. I mean, this is just a completely bonkers live album. It captures Dizzy Gillespie's second big band, extremely fine form, and it actually contains a version of Manteca where the big lyric is not crab my shoe mouth, but rather never go back to Georgia, never go back to Georgia. <laughs> and that was um what was often said at the beginning of Manteca. Some people believe this was, um, I guess, sort of speaking out against uh, some racial tensions in the South, perhaps. But I have chosen Cool Breeze as the song, as a representation, largely due to the Incredible trombone playing, courtesy of Al Gray, who would actually go on to become a mainstay of uh, Count Basie's orchestra. And to me, every bit as good as better known jazz trombone virtuosos like J.J. Johnson, Curtis Fuller, even Carl Fontana, though uh, not as well known as any of those. And I actually play the trombone. I played it throughout elementary school, high school, did jazz band in college. I still own one I still take it out From time to time To blare away But Even when I was At my best Say Freshman here of college I mean Hearing A solo from Al Gray Kind of reminds me Of the difference Between like The Golden State Warriors And the New York Knicks And that technically It's still basketball <laughs> But um, You know You can watch the Knicks And think This is not basketball So I hear Al Gray And think Wow I thought I was good I have no idea So let's listen to Cool Breeze by Dizzy Gillespie, Dizzy Gillespie at Newport, and pay attention to the unbelievable trombone solo.
0: All right, guys, thank you so much for hanging with us here in uh, this great little episode where we featured the Reba from Augusta, Maine on October 19th, 2010. Just a quick recap of the songs that we featured here. Uh, we will be posting these in our Spotify playlist. You can be sure of that. Uh, first up, we had Neil Young and Crazy Horse, Change Your Mind off of Sleeps with Angels, followed by The Strokes. Happy ending off of Come Down Machine. Later we had Dizzy Gillespie Salt Peanuts off mm. of Groovin High. And Dizzy Gillespie, Cool Breeze, off of Dizzy Gillespie at Newport.
1: Just a reminder, you can always find us in social media, on Twitter, at underscore beyond the pond, one word. Simplecast website, beyond the and as Brian was just talking about, we had the Spotify master playlist. It's getting incredibly unwieldy at this point. That is beyond the pond podcast songs and check out the other excellent podcasts in the Osiris podcast network, which you are proudly a part of. That is one word Osiris com. and leave us an iTunes review because we read them and it helps increase our visibility in Apple land.
0: Absolutely. And, uh, from a publishing standpoint, you know that we try to get everything out every other Tuesday. Usually we're successful with that, but sometimes, including right now as we speak, we are in the midst of a lot of episodes coming to you. So um, I hope you guys are enjoying them. We've got some bonus episodes capping down, uh, uh, counting down our favorite records of each year, the 2010s. We've got some great interviews going up. Um, We hope that you guys have enjoyed all the uh, overall content we're putting out, and this is uh, the first of three traditional BTP episodes that will be going live prior to the start of Summer Tour, which we are both very, very excited about.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. So, we hope you enjoyed this little deep dive into Fall 2010 and talking about the Augusta Reba. Come back in two weeks. We will Hold hands. We will attempt not to blow a game like the Mets bullpen is currently blowing one against the Phillies right now. That's not good. And then we will go beyond the pond. Distracting. Supporting.